Hi, everybody. This is John Montoya. And this is John Parings. We're authorized infinite banking practitioners and hosts of the fifth edition. Hello, everybody. Today's episode number 21, who to insure first, yourself, spouse, or maybe even your children. This is great. I'm getting this question quite a bit for whatever reason lately, where after people implement either the infinite banking concept or just want to buy life insurance, especially with the infinite banking concept, however, they start to think about how they can implement this for their children so that they can start as early as possible the compounding process. And so it's a, it's a good mindset, but there are some things to think about outside of helping our children accumulate cash value. And I saw the theme of this episode is to explore some of those different trade-offs and, and provide a couple of rules of thumb, so to speak, to uh, help people think about who they should be insuring first. Uh, we were talking about how on my side, it seems like the average age of my client who gets started with IBC is in their 40s. And the common refrain is that they think they're too old to get started because I'm you know, the same age, I'm in my mid 40s, and I have to remind them, well, I'm still getting started with new policies as I get older. And yeah. being 45 doesn't stop me from starting my next policy. It's really about understanding the fundamentals of where money needs to reside. And we've talked about that in previous episodes, but there is an education process because when they're thinking about insuring someone, the thought process is, well, I'm this age and it's going to cost me a lot more because I'm older than, say, my spouse. Or better yet, we should do a policy. I should get started with IBC and I should insure my kids first. Mm-hmm. And I get where people are coming from. But the, the interesting thing is that they're thinking about... IBC, the way that a person would normally think about buying life insurance. And we have to remind people when you're setting up an IBC plan, which ultimately is going to include multiple policies over time, while the death benefit has to be there, and it should be there, really, if we're thinking long term for multiple reasons. Really, what we're doing, though, is we're, we're minimizing the death benefit on an IBC whole life policy so that we can reduce the cost of insurance and allow for the overfunding mechanism that needs to happen in order to turn a pure whole life policy, which is typically purchased for all death benefit purposes. Mm -hmm. And we flip it upside down so that the cost of insurance is lowered. And now we can start capitalizing it to create that conceptual bank that we talk about Uh, when we're referring to infinite banking. It's definitely a different mindset than how people go about buying life insurance, at least the the standard way people think about doing it. Yeah. And before you go into, into the first rules of thumb, so you just mentioned a lot of people think about insuring their children first because of the cost of insurance. Uh, the other reason that I that I hear about is they want to insure their children first because they're thinking about how much longer those children have to compound uninterrupted growth of a cash value life insurance policy, which is also something good and correct to think about. But there's more to the story, I think, for both of these lines of reasoning than just those things that we have to keep in mind. 
if you get started with your child first, the underwriters at all the life insurance companies are going to come back and say, well, how much life insurance do you have in force on yourself? Because if something were to happen to you, the parent, who's going to pay the premium on the child's policy? The rule of thumb here across the board is that the life insurance companies are going to want to know how much life insurance the parent has in force. And they're going to require that at least one of the parents has twice the total death benefit that the child has on their life. To give an example, let's say one of the parents has a million dollars worth of death benefit, and it could be a combination of whole life term, just any type of policy, whatever the total death benefit, if that adds up to a million, then the underwriting amount that's going to be allowed on the child is going to be half that 500,000. Right. Yep. And it gets a little bit more complicated from there. And the reason why is because the younger you are, the higher the minimum amount of death benefit is needed when a policy is created. I give the example of my kids. I've got three kids. And when I started their policies, they were babies and the amount of death benefit created on each policy based on the premium that I plan to fund was close to a half million dollars. If we can give a benchmark, think of it this way. Every dollar of premium on a child might create $10 worth of death benefit. Whereas someone who's 40 years old, every dollar of premium might create $3.50 worth of permanent death benefit. So it's not an apples to apples comparison, right? Putting the same amount of dollars into a whole life policy on a child is going to create typically three times as much death benefit. Right. So saying that, you know, the child can have half half as much as one of the parents is true, but it definitely gets a little bit more complicated from there because that amount of premium that you can put on a child's life is going to be substantially lower than what you can get on a parent's whole life policy. Just to sum that point up, the amount of life insurance you can buy on a child is going to be much less than what you could buy for yourself, all all other things being equal. So the other rule of thumb is And this gets back to who's going to fund the policy, but it also gets back to thinking about the overall picture of the family. The human life value or human economic value, as a rule of thumb, the human life value of a parent on back of the napkin calculation, how much money do you earn per year and how many years do you have left working? That's the preferred way that I like to calculate how much life insurance you should have. And so is that human life value completely covered of the parents before you start addressing the life insurance policy of a child? Another rule of thumb is we want, to, we want the parents to have their full human life value covered before we start allocating uh, cash flow towards a child's life insurance policy. And if it's a dual income household, Mm-hmm. where you have both parents working, what we need to look at as advisors is where the income is coming from. Is it split 50-50? Does mm-hmm. one spouse make substantially more than the other? Because based off the, the income and how it's split up between both spouses, that's going to determine where we should lean most as far as the majority of premium going into an IVC policy. Yep. And that'll kind of naturally develop just based on the income of each spouse. 
So the percentages will kind of happen for you if you just calculate what the human life value is on each spouse. And so those percentages become important because it's going to determine what the child can actually get. So one of Nelson Nash's concepts in Becoming Your Own Banker which is a book we refer to quite a bit, sort of the founding work of the infinite banking concept. Having grandparents actually look at funding children's policies with surplus retirement income rather than the parents. One of the reasons for that is just what we mentioned is that the child's policies are going to have much lower premiums, all things being equal again, uh, than a parent's policy. And so rather than fund income that we as parents where we want to we actually have a lot more things that we're planning for often the grandparents especially if they've planned ahead and they have a lot of permanent life insurance they may just have dividends that they're getting that are surplus to what they actually need to live on that they could then allocate towards funding a grandchild's policy but here again the parent needs to have uh, enforced life insurance before they can before they can actually do that yeah, and sometimes that can be a hurdle because I know on my end, I've talked to plenty of grandparents who get really excited about IBC and they, they mm -hmm. want to start a policy for their grandchildren and the parents have to be involved. They have to sign off on it and they have to be willing to obtain the necessary amount of life insurance if they don't already have it. And sometimes that can be a stumbling block because the grandparent understands the power behind IBC, but there's a communication and an education gap uh, between the parent and the grandparent and making it happen. Right. So if that might sound familiar to any listeners <laughs> out there, grandparents specifically, share the podcast. Uh, that way <laughs> your children can learn about infinite banking and you can really, really create this multi-generational uh, process. Uh, this transfer of wealth that happens from one generation to the next and keep it going on and on and on. Because the power of this concept is that uh, there's a saying that I heard a long time ago, uh, most families are short sleeve to short sleeve from generation to generation. Um, basically what that means is wealth has a very difficult time transitioning from one generation to the next. There's so much that gets lost in terms of what's learned, life experiences, mm -hmm. and also when it comes to money. So it's very important that you continue to learn about money. And hopefully this podcast can be a conduit, a resource that, that helps you pass on your knowledge to your children. Yeah. And it just reminded me, we've, we've talked about this before, but when I talk to people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s who in their mind place zero value on having life insurance or a death benefit, and then I talk to people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, and that's the only thing they're thinking about because things change as we go through life. Priorities also change, by the way. A lot of people, it's easy for a young person to be flippant and say they don't have any desire to pass anything on to the next generation. Meanwhile, you go 40 years into the future when you're 80 years old, and that's the most important thing on your mind is leaving something behind. Having these strategies in place that we're talking about give you the options that you can, if you don't want to do it, you don't have to. But if you do, if you end up do wanting to do it, you have that option. Absolutely. Little side and note. Then, yeah. 
there's always side notes because there's there's so many different ways that we can go with IBC. Yeah. Uh, the the most important one that we always come back to is it's about having control over your financial life. And That's right. It is hard to see the bigger picture, especially early on in life. But like what you just hit on, the older we get, the more experience that we gather in life, the better we get at seeing the bigger picture of what's really important and how there is so much economic value in that death benefit. Yes, absolutely. And that actually gets to the next, the next piece of it, back to the parents. The other reason we look at the rule of thumb of ensuring the full human life value of the parent first is even if you're looking at this from a purely banking strategy and a, and a cash value accumulation strategy, because the child's policy is going to be so limited in terms of the amount of premium you can pay because of all the things we mentioned earlier, the cost of insurance, the fact that you can only insure about half of what the parent can have, putting money into whole life insurance as the parent is going to have a much bigger impact because you, you can just straight up fund more money into the policy in the form of premiums. Add to that everything we've just, saying, we've just been saying about the death benefit and replacing human life value, it makes a lot more sense and will have a lot more economic uh, benefit to any given family to have the actual income earners protected first. It's great to think about a child's policy because it's true that these policies have just so much time to experience that uninterrupted compounding effect. For very little money, you you get these really awesome life insurance policies that the child can then use. You, You look at the death benefit that they create by the time they hit 85, it's like, it's crazy. That being said, none of those plans matter if something happens to you. Right. So it's like one of the questions uh, one of my coaches, Trent Fortner, will ask is what's the one thing that could blow your plan up if you have this? And that's if you don't have your full human life value protected, you know, that future planning, looking at not only permanent insurance, but if you can't afford to pay your full human life value with a supplemental term policy before you then start funding that child's policy. Ever since we started talking about this, John, I've gotten several phone calls where existing clients are, are now starting to really see the benefits of having that supplemental term insurance if they can get it. Yeah, it's amazing what happens when we put it out into the universe. But same thing on my side. It's, it's been great to have these deeper conversations with people who are now seeing the value of ensuring their, their human life value. Even talking to clients who are in their 20s who get started with IBC, we got them thinking about future planning, having that additional supplemental term to give them the option. But like you said, not the obligation to get started with their second or maybe even third IBC policy when the cash flow is there. Let's talk a little bit about the value that a juvenile policy does create. I want to hit on this because the conventional approach is to dump money into a 529 plan, mm-hmm. which is okay, but a 529 plan is really there as a single use strategy. And what is that for? It's for college. The thing about a juvenile IBC plan, it's a multi-use strategy. What we talk about, the difference between an either-or proposition or an and proposition, when you do get a policy started for your children, it builds cash value that can be used for any purpose, including college. 
when you look at it from that perspective, there's so much greater value over a child's lifetime by having this multi-use strategy that now becomes a source of funds that can not only help pay for college, but it can also help them to finance all the cars that they're going to buy. It can be the seed money to help them start their own business. Just the ability to have options versus a single use account like a 529 where maybe, you know, the child doesn't go to college and, you know, what's the ramifications of that money, you know, at that point, not only that, but if you think about it, that 529 account, it's there to accumulate until approximately age 18. Right. And then what happens? It gets spent through in four years and it's gone forever. What are the two reasons, you know, you might not be able to use that? What, so you mentioned one, what if your kid just doesn't go to college? I mean, I, I don't want to go too much on a rant on college, but, you know, what is the value people are actually getting from college these days for the enormous cost that it has? I mean, I think a lot of people are waking up to the, to the idea that, um, you know, college is really not delivering um, what we've been told it's supposed to deliver uh, over the last 20 or 30 years. Um, and then, but even if you do go to college, I mean, there are certainly career paths that do require some college, um, you know, doctors, engineers, you know, you, you can name a whole bunch of them. What if they get a scholarship? <laughs> you know, it's like now all of a sudden you've got this money kind of tied up in a, in a 529 plan that could have been used for something else the entire time. Um, not that we can see the future, but to your point, and one of the things we always keep hitting on is how can we create more options for ourselves during these years that we're working when we don't know exactly what's going to happen in the future? How can we either roll with the punches or take advantage of, take advantage of opportunities that come our way? And I think these 529 plans are, are uh, a great way to, a great place to start where, by the way, what guarantees do you have that there'll be any money in that account at all by the time your kid goes to college? Yeah. I mean, we just have to look back on the, the last correction that we had and, you know, how many kids go away to college and lost 20, 30, 40% of their 529 account values. Yeah. yeah it's it's painful. Same. Yeah. It's the same thing that happens in retirement. What about the life lesson that could be taught to a child where if you if you became the bank, if the family became the bank and they had this powerful cash asset known as dividend paying whole life insurance that was used to fund that kid's college and then the kid pays the family bank back rather than some other bank or the government where they're getting the, the value out of that. So we're teaching some responsibility to the child as he enters into adulthood and that responsibility is to the family, not just some random institution that happens to know how to accumulate capital more efficiently than most families do. And one last thing about 529 accounts too is that with a 529 account, that money is expected to be used for college and it actually decreases the amount of financial aid a child will receive from their college of choice. So most people, most parents don't realize this. There's the cost of college, what uh, I would call the retail cost. Mm -hmm. And then there's the actual cost of college. And the more assets that the child has and that you, the parent have, and the financial aid formulas will have you list them out. Well, the more assets you have, 
the higher that ticket price is going to be for college. But guess what asset flies underneath the financial aid formula in terms of not even being considered an asset? Does it start with an L and end with an IFE insurance? <laughs> you got it. You got it. So it's a great way to not only accumulate assets for all the reasons that we talk about, but now you've got an asset base that helps to lower the overall cost of college for your children. How phenomenal is that? It's a private unilateral contract that has guaranteed accumulation and a guaranteed death benefit. And it what, flies underneath the radar. Yeah. Uh, so with children, it'll actually lower your expected contribution to pay for college. Something that you know, I don't think we've ever talked about on the show before, but uh, for listeners who have kids, that's a huge one. Yeah, I mean, we could probably dive into that a little bit deeper. And, you know, the, it, it also flies under the radar for real estate investors. You know, you can use, you don't have to report policy loans on your um, debt to income when applying for uh, real estate loans. I mean, there are all kinds of these, all kinds of benefits due to the fact that these are private contracts, pre- creditor protection, all that stuff. Absolutely. You'd like to learn more? definitely let us know. You can visit us at www.thefifthedition.com. Schedule time with us and we'll be happy to answer your questions and share more about getting started with infinite banking.